Father, we come before your throne of grace and we say that is our prayer, that this world might be full of your glory, that your church might be built, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ might be proclaimed among all of the nations, and that we, Father, who have been called by you, who are on mission, would be those who would submit ourselves to be instruments in your hands for the purposes of seeing that glory more and more pronounced in our time. Father, we acknowledge we have no power to do that, no ability to do that. We need your grace and your strength to do so. We believe that your servant Daniel is teaching us and leading us in that very way today through Daniel 7. We need your help as we read it. We need your help as we explore it together. So please come now and meet with us, your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our reading this morning comes from Daniel, the seventh chapter. This is God's Word. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream, and he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Then first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things." As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away and their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. 
I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying in its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, in which devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up from before which the three fell, and the horn that had eyes and a mouth, and spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. And as I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Then he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all of the other kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. And he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, where do we go from here? Many a good sermon series in Daniel have died in Daniel 7. Let's pray that would not be the case today. I wrestled with the title of this message. Notice it. The right side of history, the triumph of the Son of Man. I wrestle with it because I don't like that phrase, the right side of history very much. It provokes things in my own heart. In fact, of late, some of you have no doubt heard it. It's a cultural idiom that has been spoken pretty regularly, usually over some significant decision or action that has changed the tide of the way things normally have been assumed or believed and now it has been assumed that this new direction that we're taking is on, quote-unquote, the right side of history. I don't really like the phrase because the phrase actually indicates that we can know in the present how we will be remembered in the future. <laughs> that we are on the right side of history, that our children and our grandchildren and the history books that have yet to be written about us, when they do, will rise up and call us blessed. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, if you've done a little study of history, that doesn't happen much generations that pass tend to look back on previous generations and they don't look at them in the most charitable of light. Usually they see very clearly the blind spots of that history and they realize that 
why did that culture and why did those people do the weird things that they did? What was wrong with them? How, where did they get these ideas and what did this, these actions come from? Now we are enlightened and we will do different from them. That is very typical in histor historical study, which is why it's sort of ironic that Fidel Castro in 1953, which some of you will remember after he uh, put a coup of warriors together and went to Moncada and invaded the barracks there and started what would become known as the Cuban Revolution. At the end of his four-hour-long speech, I don't encourage you to read it or try to go listen to it, it's four hours long. At the end, he actually said something quite interesting. He said, I believe in the end that history will absolve me. How do you think it's going for Fidel Castro? Uh, it's simply not to make fun of, uh, of, a, of a man or a ruler, but simply to say sometimes we're really blind in our time about what we think is, quote-unquote, the right side of history. Anthony Sacramone, in an article that he wrote with the Intercollegiate Review, actually pondered this phrase, the right side of history. I read it a couple years ago, and lo and behold, was able to find it again. That's a miracle. He decided to do a little experiment in this article. He said, I want to go back and I want to think what leaders or movements in the past probably thought, which is all of them in some way or in some form, probably thought they were on the right side of history. And I wonder if we asked them today whether they were on the right side of history, they would be just as confident as they were then. If we could bend, for instance, he says, Robespierre's ear. Robespierre was, of course, a French lawyer and politician who was a part of the French Revolution and was a lightning rod figure in the late 1700s. If we could bend Robespierre's ear during the executions of the elite and the leaders of the French during his time, and we asked him, Robespierre, are you on the right side of history? What do you think he would say? Yeah. And history's not been so kind to him. Uh, Hitler, after he escaped that infamous bomb blast that was set for him by some of his assassins, some of which you may know from the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if he escaped that bomb blast at the height of his power and you were to say, oh, Adolf Hitler, um, are you on the right side of history? How do you think he would have answered? Now, Sacramento goes on to paint these turning points of history, these movements and these leaders, and he begins to say, listen, we don't always have a clear view of what's going on in our time. And the things that we assume and believe are going to be about the fruitfulness and fruition of an upward march with regards to history, will look back on us and call us blessed, which in fact oftentimes is the opposite. This is why C.S. Lewis, of course, argues in that wonderful introduction to Athanasius' work on the Incarnation that we need to study history. It's critically important that we study history. He says particularly it's important that we study the old books. And what he means by that is studying people who wrote outside of our time. He said this, he says, none of us can fully escape the blindness of our time. We shall certainly, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books, and we might say blogs and newspapers and movies and so forth as well. For where the modern books are true, they will give us truths which we pretty much already believe. And where they are false, they will aggravate the error which we are already dangerously sick with. 
The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through your mind. And this can be done only by reading the old books. Now you'll remember Lewis went on to prescribe a kind of recipe for your reading. He said, you know, for every modern book you read, read two old books. And don't go back to a modern book till you read those two old books. Now I completely agree with Lewis and I love uh, the sentiment of instruction and the wisdom that we see in here. But I'd actually like to go a step further. I believe that Daniel would tell us that we need to read the old books, but actually we need, even more importantly, to read the old book. We need to read the sacred scripture. We need not just simply to have the wind of history blowing through our minds, but we need the spirit of God blowing through our minds. We need the, the testimonies of the Old and New Testaments. We need the literacy of the Scripture to be indelibly stenciled on our beings. Because in far too often we are blind because we don't see what it is God has already said. Daniel 7 actually addresses this idea of history's meaning. And its outcome, he in fact shows us what it means to be on the right side of history. And if you're here and expecting, and maybe you're just even exploring Christianity and think, oh great, this is going to be a lesson that tells us that the church is on the right side of history and the world is on the wrong side of history. No, I'm here to tell you we're all on the wrong side of history. And there's only one who's on the right side of history. And Daniel 7 vindicates him as the world castigates him. But before we set off, before we set off on this key to history, the realization is we need a little help with Daniel chapter 7. I don't know about you, but I kind of wonder what's going on in this passage. Go ahead and say it. It's weird. It's really weird. I was talking to someone this week who they were doing a study of Daniel, not associated with our congregation, another ministry, and we were discussing it, and he goes, I'm almost to the place where it goes nuts. I'm like, I know exactly where you are, brother. I know exactly where you are. The realization is there is, in a very real sense, a tale of two narratives in the book of Daniel. There's the first six chapters that is essentially historical narrative, and actually it's a section you know very well from flannel graphs in Sunday school. You remember it very well because these are the lessons about being Daniel and the dare to be a Daniel and this is the lion's den, the fiery furnace. These are some of the high points of what it means to be raised in Sunday school. But I bet you didn't get to Daniel 7 in first grade, second grade. Um, somehow or another, the story gets cut pretty short. And the reason for this is the flannel graph with the ten-horned fourth beast is just really scary. You just, it's really scary, and, and if you put it before a first grader, it's going to cause nightmares, and so you don't do it. And so we actually steer away from it because we don't know what to do with it. Now, here's the realization. <laughs> Peter said that there are some things in Paul's writing that are hard to understand. Yeah, there are. Now, Peter could have easily said that about the second half of Daniel. I, I give you Daniel himself. Daniel himself says in verse 15, As for me, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I get that, Daniel. I get that. Can you imagine being actually in his shoes experiencing this vision? We get it from the black and white here. And then notice what he does in verse 16. He did what I did this week. He tried to find someone who knew something. 
I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. Now that's greatly comforting to me as a preacher and a pastor, and I hope it's comforting to you as a Bible reader, that Daniel received this revelation and then he went, hey, can you tell me about this, what this is all about? Which means that there are times that as you walk through the last half of the book of Daniel, you're going to be royally confused. And actually, you're going to leave my sermon a bit confused. And you're going to say, I think he's a little confused about what's going on in Daniel. And you know what? You're probably going to be right. And I will warn you ahead of time that that will happen. But with that, inside the mysteries of what's here in Daniel 7 all the way through Daniel 12 is a treasure trove of truth. And it's given to us in what is called apocalyptic literature. A really vivid technicolor type of writing that blows things up with imagination and beautiful, glorious, scary, bizarre spiritual realities in order to awaken us to what's really going on underneath the surface through what we see with our eyes. Do you see, if we were to actually look at Daniel as actually two different tales that's saying the same thing, Daniel 1 to 6 gives us the historical narrative. And then Daniel 7 to 12 goes back and it says, here was the spiritual underlay that was happening all of the time that the fiery furnace and the Daniel of the lion's den, and the satrap with the eating at the king's court, all of those machinations of history, here's a spiritual vision of what they really look like. And by awakening us to the fact that there is a scene that is underneath the scenes of history, it gets us to the real heart of the matter of what moves along this thing called History. Now, with that as an introduction, I want to look at this in three ways, and I want to do it in just a couple of minutes, because we only have a couple of minutes. But then we'll circle back, in Daniel 8, we'll get to circle back over this material a bit. And as we do so, I want to apply it very specifically to you as a congregation and to us in our time period. But I want you to see this. I want you to see in Daniel chapter 7 that we have the beasts who are behind the brutality of history. We have the God who is behind the judgment of history. And we have the Son of Man who enters and saves history and whose kingdom will forever reign. We have the beast behind the brutality of history. We have the God behind the judgment of history. And we have the Son of Man who enters and saves history, whose kingdom will forever reign. All right, let's do the impossible. Let's dig in. The origin of the beast... Look at it here in verses 1 to 8. The origin of the beast. Keep your text close to you as we begin to make some marks. I want you to see this first. Note that the beasts, all four of them, they arise from the sea. We're told there's a great stirring in the sea and the beasts come out of the sea. Now, those of you who know your Bible know that Daniel, with this vision and God as he reveals it, is pulling in all kinds of Old Testament imagery here. The sea is constantly an image in the Old Testament of chaos, of, of that which is in flux. Just as you go to the ocean and you watch the sea and it's constantly doing this and it's all the time changing. It's the idea that things are unstable, unstable. And it even has a picture, as we look at Psalm 89 and Psalm 93, of the idea of being rebellious towards God himself. 
These beasts come out of the sea. And in fact, the great sea that, or the great serpent known as the Leviathan, the horrifying multi-headed beast, which we actually catch a glimpse of a multi-headed beast here in Daniel 8, is spoken of specifically in Psalm 74 and is spoken of again in the book of Revelation. It's giving us a picture of the fact that this, these beasts are rising out of a great stirring of chaos and rebellion against God. Notice how they're described. One is described like a lion, but he's not like any lion you and I have ever seen. He's a lion who has wings. He's a mixed composite animal. Now, if you may look at that and go, yeah, I think I've, you know, I think I've, I've seen kind of weird mythological things like this before. And I, I remember that Napoleon Dynamite liked a liger, you know, and it was a combination of a lion and a tiger. You know, you remember that those kind of things happen, right? But what the passage is actually giving us here. It's actually telling us that there's a mixing of the creational order. There's a taking of a piece of an animal here and it's putting it on an animal here and it's making something that's monstrous. That's why it's described here as a beast. None of them are like they ought to be. They're not designed in the way that they were originally designed. We see in this case before Daniel's eyes the wings are plucked off as this beast-like lion is set upon the soil and it actually gains a human mind. I wish we could spend a long time on what's going on there, but we're going to move quickly. The second beast was like a bear. And notice that we see that this bear is misshapen. In some way or another, he's on his side, which may mean that he's almost exacerbated on one side. He's bigger on one side than he is on another. Maybe he's sort of like the hunchback of Notre Dame of sorts. Or it could mean that he's poised and he's ready to consume, which we see he's done a little bit of. There's some ribs hanging out of his mouth and between his teeth he's just had lunch. And in this particular case, he is told that he is to go eat more flesh. He is a ravenous, bloodthirsty, violent beast that feeds upon others. The third beast is another mixed animal, a leopard and a bird. But in the strangeness of this, it has four heads the multi-headed leviathan that we talked about a little bit earlier. Probably an indication, too, that this beast could actually see in a variety of directions. It's very quick. It would be incredibly hard to escape. You could never sneak up, as it were, on this beast. This beast went out in many directions. We're told specifically that this beast is actually given some dominion to rule. Someone bestowed it some power. Now, as we get to the fourth beast, things get really hairy, um, as we approach this beast, notice there is no parallel with animals. The first three beasts, we can say, okay, right, I, I know what a lion looks like. I know what a bear looks like. I can kind of envision it. It's weird, but I can kind of envision it. This one, he says, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't, know, I don't have a parallel for you in the animal kingdom. This one is obviously distorted, obviously misshapen, and Daniel doesn't even give us a parallel with the first three. He just begins to tell us certain parts of it. He said it has great iron teeth, it devoured in broken pieces and then stepped everything else with its feet. It had ten horns, a symbol of biblical strength, and the number ten likely meaning that that strength is being multiplied. This is an incredibly strong beast. In fact, he refers to it as terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. Then we have this weird little interaction about a small horn. You get that one? The small horn arises and uproots three other horns, which later, of course, we're told as kings. And this horn is, has eyes and it speaks. It's, we're told it speaks great things. It's probably to be best understood as it speaks arrogant things. It speaks boastful things. It makes claims about itself. And then we see at the end there in verse 15 that Daniel's really struggling with this. Okay, 
Got it? Now, what does this Jurassic Park zombie apocalypse collision actually mean? Well, here's here's what's really nice about Daniel 7 is Daniel tells you through this kind of visionary bystander. He's kind of like an ancient, you know, Virgil or Dante. He sort of guides Daniel along and kind of says, yeah, that's kind of what that means. And that's kind of what that means there. And in many ways, quite interestingly, the, the angel, this bystander, doesn't really say that much. Tells us a little bit, but he tells us enough. Look at what he says in Daniel uh, 7, 16. Um, it, it, he said, after Daniel approaches him, he gives him this quick explanation in the next verse, verse 17. He says, these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Great. All right, so at least we know what they stand for. They stand for kings, or we could even say kingdoms. They stand, I think of it this way, they stand as blocks of power. Images of blocks of power that are coming for a lust for that power and for domination. The question becomes, what kings and kingdoms is Daniel talking about? What's he actually referring to here? Well, now, this again is where it gets complex. But a lot of scholars do something here that I think makes a whole lot of sense. Remember how we said at the very beginning with apocalyptic literature that in some ways, Daniel 1 to 6 is giving us the historical narrative. And in the historical narrative, what did we find? We find that the people of Israel went into exile. We find they went into exile. Babylon came in and conquered them. And Nebuchadnezzar brought these elite into his courtroom. And largely we follow his courtroom in the first six chapters of, or we follow a courtroom in the first six chapters of Daniel. But the kings change. They they change from, from, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar. And then guess what happens? The Medo-Persian Empire comes in and it conquers Babylon and we have this guy named Darius who shows up. And so we see a shift in power and then we see a shift in a kingdom. And then by the end of Daniel, we see this little glimmer of this guy called Cyrus who's going to be really important to the people of Israel as they seek to return to the land later. So we see this picture of Babylon to Medo-Persian Empire. Well, now if you look at the opening of Daniel, chapter 7, what you notice is this is situated in the Babylonian kingdom. If you go back to Daniel 6, you'll notice we're already past this. Daniel's not working chronologically here. Daniel's going back and picking up something, I would argue, probably as back as far as Daniel chapter 2. In fact, many scholars believe that's the case because of the parallel is so clear. Do you remember what happened in Daniel 2? Well, we've been in Daniel for a little while. Going back to last fall, you'll remember there's lots of visions. Nebuchadnezzar had one of a statue, a large statue that had a gold head. It had a silver chest and arms. It had a bronze midsection and thighs. And it had feet that were, had a composite of iron and clay. You remember that? And here's what's noteworthy. It's four different metals. Right? It's four different metals. And we're actually told in Daniel chapter 2 who is the golden head. Nebuchadnezzar is. And, and Babylon And we're told that there's going to be four kings and four kingdoms that are going to rise up. And scholars very consistently see the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. And then during the Roman Empire, what happens? Well, in Daniel chapter 2, we're told a rock comes. It's hewn, and it crushes the statue. Well, of course, who is this? Well, it's it's Jesus himself. It's the kingdom of God. It's the inauguration of the coming of the kingdom. It's a foretelling of what's going to happen. Well, you see four beasts here, don't you? We're told that they're four kings. 
We're told specifically in this text that these are blocks of power and we're in the Babylonian Empire as this Belshazzar vision is now taking place This during the reign of Belshazzar. Many scholars at this point go, this is a revision of Daniel chapter 2 in another light. This is the four beasts. This is Babylon. This is the Medes and the Persians or the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greeks and the Romans. This fourth one is the eternal kingdom, or so we thought, Rome, that is of a different caliber, of a different nature, of a different level. And yet, in the midst of this, we're told about someone who is the Ancient of Days. So we've got this very clear rhythm between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 that there is some parallel that is happening between these two. And it is very potential that these beasts display the time in which Daniel's in. But let me tell you, I don't think that's the main point. As important as it is, I don't think that's the key. Because if that was the key, it would mean that this entire, the entirety of this is just over. But actually, when the angel talks to Daniel in this passage, he gives him a few details. You know Daniel, he's like, hey, tell me about that beast. Hey, tell me especially about that fourth beast. That one was really scary. And he goes on a little bit about the fourth beast, but he doesn't tell him much. Instead, he steers his attention towards the courtroom of heaven. And he does that because he wants Daniel focused on the right thing while understanding the reality of history. And here's the main thing he's saying about history. He's saying that the theater of world history with kings and with kingdoms in its large portion, is beastly. And it's animated by the great beast himself. The ancient Leviathan. The ancient serpent or dragon of old. The one who long ago was about distorting and destroying creation when he came to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden. He is the one who is actually the animating power behind what you're seeing in the world's theater. He is the one who is really at work. That There is a scene, a spiritual scene, that's underneath the scenes of history. There is a machination that happens up here, but there's a puppet of power spiritually that's pulling strings Underneath. Now, how do we actually know this, and how is it that we could actually argue this? Well, if you, if you were to look at Revelation chapter 13, you see that John borrows from Daniel and teaches us very clearly that this is what's been happening in history and what will happen up to the culmination of history. I want you to hear of, of John's view here. Look at John, uh, John's writing in Revelation chapter 13, verse 2. You can just listen. And the beast that I saw, listen to the way John says this, the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Hmm. We had a leopard, I think, in our reading. Its feet were like a bear's. Yep, we had a bear in our reading. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Well, there it is. There it is. There's our first three beasts that are described here in Daniel chapter 7. And then notice he tags this on at the end of verse 2. And, it, and to these beasts, and to it, the dragon, ah, the dragon, gave his power and his throne, and his authority. Now what is John saying? John is saying that when you see wars and rumors of wars, when you see um, oppression and violence, when you see the destruction of everything that is good and right and true and beautiful, and you see a lust for power and dominion, and you see these things being willing to destroy all of those who are in their wake, what you're seeing is the very spirit of the evil one himself. 
you're seeing the great dragon animate the theater of history. It's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Did we think we were wrestling against flesh and blood? Did, did we think these issues were just social? Would it, is it just education? If we could just get people education, they would quit these lone wolf attacks. You know, you've been seeing these lone wolf attacks? If we could just get people in the right home environment, if we could early give them kind of psychological examination and the right medication, we could keep all this from happening. Do you see, these are the ways in which we often diagnose the problems of our society and our community. And you know what actually Daniel is saying through this vision, what God is revealing to him? He says there's a power much deeper. There's a problem much more sinister at the very core of men and nations. You know, it can feel very defeating, can it? Get the, the guy you want as your leader and get the policies you want. Pass through the legislature. Get them enacted. And then that guy loses re-election. You know, or the policies get changed. I don't know if you've noticed there's this, there's this pattern that happens in all of history. And Daniel is saying, I want you to know your problems aren't merely political. Oh, it happens at that level. But underneath, the realities are spiritual. And so what he does here in the midst of this passage is the angel says, but listen, I want you to see the courtroom of heaven. And he steers us to the God who is behind the judgment of history. Behind the judgment of history. Look at what he says. God rules over all here. Look at what Daniel um, teaches us. He says, I looked and the thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His hair is as pure wool. His clothes are as white as snow. And if you read through Daniel chapter 7, you get to verse 9. It's really interesting. Probably in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles open, it's broken out in poetry. It's because the prose really slows down here. If we read through the beast section, it was just getting more and more escalated and more and more tense. And then all of a sudden in verse 9, he looks and he sees some thrones in place. And, and you have it like this. It's like the Ancient of Days walks up and just takes his seat. It's this sense of being in control. He knows his place. He's been around forever. He's the Ancient of Days. The beasts are popping up and falling and kingdoms are coming and going. But what the Ancient of Days, he's just always there. He remains and as he sits, we're told thousands attend to him and tens upon tens of thousands are before him. It's a picture of the great judgment. That all of those who have been beastly throughout all of history now sit at the tribunal of the Ancient of Days. And as he sits, notice what everybody else does. They sit too. They follow his lead. And then he opens the book. This may not seem like much, but it's really, I would argue, maybe the most frightening part of the whole chapter. Because <laughs> you know what book this is? It's the book that tells all about all. Yeah, the things that we thought we were going to get away with. We don't get away with them. He does justice by the book. He's not capricious. He's not whimsical. He tells us in the scripture every idle word 
will be brought to judgment. This is, this is a moment of incredible sobriety. You've probably been in a meeting, and maybe you've been on the unfortunate side of a meeting, where you are there, and you think you've got evidence for your defense, and you know you're really guilty, but you are trying to defend yourself, and you're speaking, and you're doing everything, and then all of a sudden, they open a book, or open an email, or they give the evidence, and you just kind of go, I've been in that meeting before. It's not fun. That's this meeting. This is the God who judges behind all of history. His hair is pure wool. His clothes are white and pure and righteous. Daniel continues, his throne is flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing out and coming out from before him. Fire is an image of God throughout the Old Testament. It's an image often of judgment. God is a consuming fire, Deuteronomy 4.24 tells us. And even as he sits and as he judges, this fourth kingdom and this little horn, a picture of what I believe to be the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about and the Antichrist, who's also spoken about in the, in the New Testament, also having historical revelation all the way throughout, both and. I wish we could talk about that right now. We will. He will speak words, we're told, to the Most High. He keeps talking. He's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. But here's what will happen in verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment. And here's what will happen. His dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to its end. What this one has done to others will be done to him. Now let me tell you, if you're a persecuted Christian across the world right now, Daniel 7 is music to your ears. It is a picture of justice for those who have had their throats slit by ISIS on beaches that you and I have watched from a very safe distance. This is a picture of godly, righteous justice, and it should make us shake in our boots. This is the Ancient of Days. There is nothing that you have done in secret that he does not know. And that in one way or another will be revealed in technicolor. Either to your shame and to your judgment or to the praise of Christ that he paid for it. But it will be revealed. Even as believers we struggle with this. We will pass through a judgment. Paul tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13. That we too will pass through the fire. And when we pass through the fire the dross will be burned away. And what remains will stay. We will be known, even as we are known now by Christ, we will know him. But everything that's revealed here in this picture is something, let's be honest, would be pretty scary. You know, know, this week, Tom Brady had a few of his emails published. Did you notice this, some of you? Yeah, he had a few of his emails published with this deflate gate thing. Amazing. But anyway... he had a few of his emails. We found out what he thought about Peyton Manning a little bit. We also found out what he thought about the price of pool covers and all kinds of stuff. Some of the emails are uh, less than flattering. Uh, let me say it, embarrassing. And we might kind of go like, well, you know, he's Tom Brady, makes millions of dollars, and he's like, what if your emails were published? I get a little shiver when I think about that. 
What if the words I said behind closed doors were known and recorded? They are. They are. Not in a weird stalker way. In an ancient of days way. In an ancient of days way. Do you see, though we've never stood for election or held public office necessarily, we are daily being, trying to be the kings and queens of our kingdoms. And more times than not, it's about our agenda. It has very little to do with Him. It's about what we want and how quickly we want it. And if we need to step over somebody to do that, if we need to oppress somebody, if we need to steal, if we need to lie a little bit, if we need to shade things in a certain direction, if we need to push someone down in order to get up, whatever we need to do, we're going to do it. And what we're hearing actually in this passage is that's of the evil one. That's the spirit of the evil one animating us. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17 that judgment must begin with the household of God. Listen, have you spent more time pointing out the sins of the culture than paying attention to the sins of your heart? That's the question that this passage is drawing out. And don't hear me say, Nate said we shouldn't point out the sins of the culture. Nate didn't say that. Just say you're going to be probably falling into the little horn spirit of spouting great things boastfully without acknowledging the fact that there are several fingers pointing back in your way too. When we call out, when we expose, when we see, we've got to do so with humility. We've got to do so knowing that if God should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand? Do you see, that's why in verses 13 to 14, the Son of Man enters and he saves history here. I want you to see what he does, just real briefly. He came with the clouds. He didn't come from the sea. He came with the clouds. He came from heaven. He came from another origin. And notice he came like a Son of Man. He wasn't exactly like us, but he was human. He came in our form. But notice he was presented before the Ancient of Days. He was there to be judged. By the ancient of days. And notice, of all of the people that get judged, here's what happens. When he was judged, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. He's the only one that stood before the ancient of days and was on the right side of history. He's the only one who can ever say, history will absolve me. He's the only one. You and I should never have the arrogance to say such a thing. We don't know our hearts if we're saying such a thing. We're fools before the Lord. Who could stand? He stands. He stands, but here's the amazing piece of how he stands. He stands as one who has given his life for those who can't stand before the Ancient of Days. The ones that would be slaughtered by one word from the ancient of days, from the fire wheels and the river of fire that comes off to test them, to see whether they pass into the permanence of eternity. All of us would vaporize on the spot except for the fact that the righteousness of Christ has been applied to those who are trusting in the one who received the blow of judgment. Judgment. 
on your behalf on the cross. The one who took the penalty for your sin has also given you his standing before the ancient of days. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable as love. It's unbelievable as grace. Let us not be arrogant with his grace. Let us be humbled by his grace. Let us live in the humility of that grace. Let us pray for our nation. Let us pray for the beasts of our time. And let us ask that the Lord would have mercy on us through the merits and the power and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ because he alone is on the right side of history. He alone is on the right side of history. Father in heaven, we ask you to forge this truth within us. Blazon this upon our hearts and teach us your word. Humble us. Lord, you've humbled me so much this week in reading this passage of scripture. Who am I to even preach it? Oh, Lord, so far to go, and yet so far have I been taken through the merits of Christ already. Oh, Lord, please do that with this, your church cornerstone, and make us, by your grace, a beacon of light to the nations until you come in glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.